Good afternoon, everybody. We went to worship this morning, and now I'm back again for another hour. We enjoyed a wonderful shower at Easton Henderson, and I hope you have also had a good day on this same particular day. The biggest blessing, perhaps, of the shower, at least the most immediate one, is it's much cooler in Henderson. I guess we'll be back to our heavy humidity and heat by tomorrow or the next day. What we were doing last time is we were talking about the speech of the Apostle Paul on the Areopagus to the uh, men and women of Athens, and we had suggested that this was uh, perhaps the first great battle between Christianity and the dominant philosophy and way of thought in the first century. Uh, this would be in Athens, the great intellectual center of the world. This would be uh, the very heart and soul of where all of the Greek philosophy and mythology and the like came from. And here would be Christianity's first real encounter with this. I, I would like you to just pause and think for a few minutes about how uh, that kind of a thing might occur. Uh, what if I had taken you to the Zambezi Valley? And what if you had encountered a tribe uh, perhaps down there that was so remote that they knew nothing about the Bible whatsoever? They knew uh, nothing about Moses, nothing about Jesus. It would all have been introduction. What would you say to them? And I suppose if I could make light of a serious problem, I guess, uh, that you probably wouldn't start with, well, uh, today I'd like to talk to you about instrumental music, or today I'd like to talk to all of you about the day that we are supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper, or something along that line. I suspect what we would do is try to find some message that was more fundamental, that was more central to the entire Christian message as a whole. Plenty of time to address other subjects, such as the ones I mentioned a moment ago, but this would be a good time for somebody to find something that introduces the, the very foundation of our faith in God Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his Son. And so that was what the Apostle Paul was also doing. We, you might recall that I had suggested that there were three things that Paul was trying to say to the Athenians on that particular day in the form of three questions which the Apostle Paul uh, might seek to ask uh, the people that uh, were standing out before him on that particular day. And the first one was, where, uh, where am I from? How did I get here? Uh, the suggestion was that God made me. <clears throat> and I uh, had been pointing out that God does not live in temples built by hands, and that uh, here they were uh, standing and looking at some of the most amazing uh, buildings that humans had built in history. Uh, temples for Zeus and the Parthenon and hundreds of other lesser temples were right there within sight of the Apostle Paul. Uh, perhaps as he said those words that God does not live in a temple made by hands, he could even swept his arm and pointed um, across the whole valley area below him to indicate all of those various things. And then Paul says in verse 25 of Acts chapter 17, and he, that is God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now at first shot you might find that a surprise. Uh, what? Uh, God isn't served by human hands, but what the Apostle Paul means is not that God doesn't want us to serve him, but that God does not need us to serve him. You might put it this way, who needs whom? Who 
which one of us in this interaction actually needs the interaction. Uh, it seems to me that God is so great and so magnificent, so powerful, that even if humans did not serve him, he would still be great and powerful and magnificent. It is we who would suffer enormously if we were not serving God. I think about uh, something that the psalmist said in Psalm 50, and I'd like to uh, read that passage, Psalm 50, beginning with verse 7 where the psalmist is saying something quite similar in the sense of whether or not God needs us or we need God. Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O people, the psalmist begins, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. What the Lord is trying to suggest to the Israelites is that, uh, that, that perhaps they were taking their sacrifices in the sense of, uh, well, if I don't offer the sacrifice, God won't have anything to eat. Um, the sacrifice that I offer, the bull or the goat or whatever it is, it's something that, that God needs. And so when I come in to offer it to him, he consumes it. Well, God only consumes these sacrifices in a sort of figurative sense. And with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, God will explain to his people, if I really actually needed to eat a cow or uh, some meat, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I can take one of those any time. The question would be, uh, how much do we need God? Uh, now, uh, somebody put it this way, how much do we need God? Take a breath. Go ahead and take a breath. God allowed you to do that. Take another breath. God allowed you to do that too. Apart from God's will, we would die. We wouldn't be able to even breathe the air that's around us. We are so thoroughly dependent on him. Now, another thing that the Apostle Paul suggests in this encounter with the men of Athens, Athens is found in Acts 17, verse 26. Here he says, For from one man he made every nation of men. I suppose the Apostle was aware of the fact that the Athenians were uh, at least considered themselves a superior race of individuals, and there was perhaps some reason to think that way. Here was the seat of the intellectual world. Here was the seat of philosophy and science and the like. It might be uh, fairly... Uh, um, easy for an Athenian to suggest that, well, we're part of a superior race. We're part of a group of people that is much more civilized than people around us. And indeed, people in that first century in Greece tended to view themselves as superior and refer to all other nations as barbarians. And so there was a sense in which they felt like uh, they had some pride in their own background. There are, no, however, no Greeks and barbarians slave-free in Christianity. And in fairness um, uh, to the Greeks, it might be remembered that uh, Jews also viewed the world in much the same way. Uh, Jews and Gentiles. And there, there, there is another expression of racial or ethnic pride. Or, for instance, citizens and non-citizens, as far as the Romans were concerned. And so it was fairly common in that day, and if we thought about it, even in our day, to suggest that we might, or our group, or our race, uh, or our country might be superior to others in some special way blessed by God. Now the second thing that Paul tries to convey in his message to the Areopagus crowd is this question, why am I here? And for the Apostle Paul the answer is to seek God. 
Please notice, if you would, Acts 17, uh, verses 27 to 29. Acts 17, verse 27 to 29. He says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The Apostle Paul uh, moves to the second part, which is to speak in terms of meaning. Who are we as human beings? And, and what is it that fulfills us? What is it that makes us uh, people who uh, reach the fulfillment, the potential that we might have? Notice Paul saying that it is our purpose to reach out and seek God. Reach out has the idea of blindly groping in the dark. It might be the way that a blind man would reach out and try to find obstacles or try to find belongings of his. Uh, explore uh, perhaps even a person's facial features, reaching out and running his hands over uh, the other person's face. I had the experience many years ago of having an elderly African woman who is blind reach out and, and run her hands over my face. She started at the top of my head, uh, feeling my hair, and then ran her hands simply down uh, by my forehead, through by my eyes, uh, by my mouth and chin, and down to the neck. And then she was able to make some very accurate observations about my appearance, even though she didn't see me. It was a very intimate moment. She was literally within arm's distance of me. God is a source for human aspirations, you see. Humans have an innate thirst for finding God. We are the subjects of an incurable uh, religiosity. We have this genetic code that programs us to never be fully whole until we find God. Now it certainly is true that humans will sometimes try to fill this need in inappropriate ways or perhaps even inadequate ways. Uh, perhaps we would seek it in, in drugs or in hard work. Uh, or in partying, uh, or in sexual excess. But whatever way it is that we try to seek the fulfillment that humans all feel, every one of them will not, none of them will stack up to the actual fulfillment of finding God and developing a relationship in it. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul spends a moment to quote Greek mythology. He quotes particularly in this passage Epinides of Crete, who uh, wrote in 600 before Christ. Uh, here is what he says. They fashioned a tomb for you, O high and holy one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. You might actually recognize a quote earlier on in that statement that Paul uses when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1. Uh, that, that would be the uh, reference to Cretans who are always liars and evil beasts, at least according to Epinides of Crete. And uh, of course the significance of that would be the fact that young Titus was doing ministry in the island of Crete and so Paul was reflecting on uh, what was uh, uh, widely thought of regarding uh, people from Crete. Even today we have a phrase sometimes when we're referring to somebody who is uh, a little less than civilized or uh, behaves in a manner that is uh, not, not um, appropriate, we might say, oh, they're a group or a bunch of Cretans, and that comes from this kind of a statement. But the second part of Epinides of Crete's statement is the one that Paul quotes here in the Areopagus speech. 
he says, for in you we live and move and have our being. A lot of scholars like to comment on that and wonder if the Apostle Paul was using it in an authoritative sense. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, in the same sense that Paul might have quoted from an Old Testament passage and say, well, the psalmist said or Isaiah said and then make a quote and that perhaps Saul is, at least Paul is treating this particular quote as if it is also inspired. But I don't think it's necessary to view it that way. Preachers even today will have a way of quoting perhaps a well-known public figure of our day and age, uh, perhaps a well-known coach of a basketball team, and something that was uh, uh, particularly wise or interesting that he said, perhaps quoting uh, some politician. Uh, I uh, suppose I would be known for quoting somebody like uh, Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln and making that a, a part of the illustration that I'm trying to make as I'm doing a message. And the Apostle Paul perhaps also had it in mind to suggest to the Athenian crowd that he too was aware of some of their writings, aware of some of their philosophies, and uh, that he wasn't a country bumpkin who knew nothing. Now, um, why would it be absurd, as we think about this, to create an image of God such as an idol? Uh, it seems to me that uh, that's a, a good question to ask. Paul says that here is a God that you, you cannot make an idol out of. You cannot uh, 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 fashion him in any gold or silver or any other material. And the answer to that question, why would it be wrong to fashion an image of God, is because any depiction of God would be a woefully inadequate expression of who God is. There is no skillful workman or artist who is up to the task of adequately expressing God. And there is no uh, writer who could put down the words that were brilliant enough and, and, and creative enough to express who God is. Now, an idol is a human being's creation rather than God's creation. And clearly, if, if a creation is inferior to the creator, then an idol would be inferior to us and certainly then would be inferior to a real God or the God of the heavens. Therefore, idolatry is unnecessary, even nonsensical. Now, the third question that Paul asks when he speaks to the Athenian crowd is this, where am I going? And the apostle Paul's response is to the judgment. Now, today we might listen to people of a sort of new age persuasion, and they may suggest that, uh, in fact, life is a circle. And so uh, perhaps they picture uh, us dying as human beings and, and then coming back in another life as another kind of creature, uh, perhaps even depending on what kind of human being we were, whether we were generous and thoughtful and that kind of thing, or spiteful and uh, criminal or something like that, we would come back as, as a good creature or, or perhaps uh, a lesser creature. Now, that's what they might say. Uh, or perhaps many people in our society would simply see our death as the end of existence. We live 70 or 80 or 90 years on this earth, and then when we die, when the body dies, that is the end of us altogether. But the Apostle Paul doesn't see that. The Apostle Paul suggests that all humans are making a long journey towards a particular point, and that point is where we come back to face our Maker. If you would notice in Acts 17 verses 30 and 31, Paul says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Now, uh, the, the call to repentance is one that every human being must face. Because, um, uh, because why, somebody might ask. And, and the response to that is to say in verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What Paul is suggesting is that there will come a time when we will meet God and be uh, responsible for all of the actions that we've taken, all the words that we've expressed. The call to repent. This is the third point in the sermon, and, and Paul uses for the third time the word unknown. In fact, this is one of the characteristics of this particular passage. Uh, please would you note that there were three uses of the Greek word agnosta in Paul's Mars Hill or Areopagus sermon. Uh, the word agnosta comes from uh, the word knowledge. Knowledge is gnosis, and then you put the alpha in front, that's a negative, so knowledge becomes ignorance. Notice, of course, that in Acts 17, verse 23, the Apostle Paul points to an altar to the unknown God, that's agnosta. Uh, then secondly, they worshipped this God in ignorance, Paul says. And again, it's the Greek word agnosta. This is 17 verse 23. And then finally in 17 and verse 30, the, the verses we were looking at, God overlooked once all this ignorance, that is the ignorance of all these other nations, the ones who are not Jewish. But now God calls on all people everywhere to repent, the Apostle Paul says. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that when you think about the word agnosta, you, you recognize our English word agnostic. And I'd like to suggest that, that uh, though an agnostic is in our society, a person who feels as if there is insufficient evidence to believe God or disbelieve him, that in the Greek way of thinking, it simply suggests that somebody who is ignorant of something, the unknown. And so in these three senses, the Athenians were unknown, uh, did not know something. They did not know this God, and the Apostle Paul then turns and says, well, you worship in, in, in ignorance, and then at the end of his message he says, God once overlooked this ignorance, and I assume that he's suggesting that, that now ignorance is no longer an excuse, but now calls on all men everywhere to repent. And then he mentions the judgment. It might have been a surprise to the Athenians to learn that not only was there a great God over all of the cosmos, and not only was this great God greater than any temple that could be built by a human being or, or any idol that could be fashioned by a human being, but that this God called upon them for certain responsibilities. He has set a day, Paul says, when he will judge the world with justice by the man appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This repentance is urgent, Paul suggests, because there's judgment. Uh, there will come a day when we will all be asked how we serve God and whether or not we were responsible to him. New Age, for New Age prophets, is a circle of life, but actually life is a journey, and it has a destination, and the destination is our eternal destiny. We will have an eternal destiny in one place or the other, and at the end of life, at the end of that journey, God will choose will direct us according to the way we've lived, uh, either to eternal punishment or eternal reward. And that's what he was suggesting here. Now, the Apostle Paul found what you might call uh, perhaps not the most enthusiastic response from the Athenians. In Acts 17, verse 32, uh, Luke records this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among them 
were also Dionysius the Areophagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There were some people who were responsive to the apostles' message, but most of them were either skeptical or mocking or perhaps just were uh, putting it off at arm's length and saying, well, that's interesting, let's talk further about it. But uh, certainly the city of Athens did not, at least initially, seem to be a very rich source for the early church and for converts. There would be other cities that would have more significant uh, churches, greater uh, in at least in numbers, uh, churches in Athens. The Apostle Paul then moves farther south until he comes to that neck of land that connects the province of Achaia with the rest of Greece. If you were to look at the map that is on the PowerPoint, you can see that uh, Achaia is in the far southern part of the land of Greece, and it is almost an island. If it was not for that narrow neck of land, it would indeed be an island. And Corinth was located strategically right there, right at that neck of land. Uh, it was uh, the city that uh, controlled uh, the access, uh, east and west and north and south at that point. Um, the Apostle Paul spent, we believe, about two, about one and a half years in Corinth, from A.D. 50 to 52. The Isthmus, I-S-T-H-M-U-S, was the place where that little neck of land connected to the two parts of Greece. They even had the Isthmian Games there. In fact, most of the great metropolitan centers of Greek culture would have gains of one kind and another. The city of Corinth enjoyed great prosperity and had a large population. It was a Roman colony, uh, what is more. It had been destroyed in 146 BC and rebuilt in about 46 BC by Julius Caesar uh, and he made it the capital of Achaia uh, as well. Uh, the city of Corinth, perhaps like many cities, was renowned for its uh, corruption, its particularly its sexual excess. In fact, in ancient times, if somebody would have suggested that somebody else was uh, Corinthianized, what they would mean by that particular phrase was they had become corrupted by the evil and the influence of the city of Corinth. There was an acrocorinth, which should be the term for a hill behind the city of Corinth, uh, sometimes used as a defense if the city was under attack. It was also where the temple of Aphrodite was uh, uh, located and Asclepius. Asclepius would be the god of uh, uh, medicine uh, and doctors in ancient times. And so here is the great city of Corinth. It was a, a city, uh, perhaps more than most cities of the ancient times, uh, that was renowned for uh, its sexual excess. And you can tell when you read the book of 1 Corinthians in particular uh, that the Apostle Paul feels very strongly the need to counter uh, this uh, laissez-faire attitude towards sexual mores in that particular city. Now the PowerPoint shows a couple of things there. First of all is the Temple of Apollo. You can see that most of the building has been destroyed, but there are the pillars there and part of the roof on that building. If you look down just a little below, you can see the Acrocorinth, the hill that is behind the city of Corinth. You can see the uh, various walls, some of them dating back to the time of Paul, some of them perhaps to later dates. You can see how good a defense that particular area would have been. And then the next picture that you have is um, uh, also a very, a very important one, it seems. There's a canal 
that runs from the east to the west today. Uh, it's one that allows ships to go from uh, the uh, east in the Aegean Sea all the way across to the other side going towards Rome. Uh, modern uh, engineers have cut that canal out. Uh, in ancient times the canal was not there but they had lowered an area and then they would lay logs on top of a, a sort of um, uh, area where they could take ships, perhaps smaller ships, or perhaps the baggage on a larger, larger ship, and slaves would drag them across all the way from the one side of the, to the other, something like three or four or five miles. And, and that would be, uh, that was, they considered, a better way to bring a ship around than to take it through uh, the very uh, complicated island and shoal-filled uh, coast of the province of Achaia. Now, in Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, we read about this encounter between Paul and the people of, Athens, of Corinth. In 18 verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see him. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Turns out that both of these Jewish men then had a similar trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Please note the second use of that word dialegomai. They dialogued. Uh, he dialogued with the Jewish people in the, in the synagogue. Then Silas, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be silent, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So a year and a half, perhaps even longer, because he'd already spent some time with the Athenians, the Apostle Paul preached and taught in the city of Corinth. Ancient Corinth was renowned for its sexual excess. We've already said that. So much so that when you wanted to say that somebody had been corrupted, that you would even use the term Corinth in it. This obsession was caused partly by the presence of a temple to Aphrodite in the Acre Corinth, uh, where about 1,000 priestesses resided, and they would descend into the city at dusk to ply their trade. Aphrodite was a goddess of love. The city was isolated on the narrow neck of land connecting Achaia and the mainland, and its most narrow point, it was only three and a half miles wide, and that's where the ships then would be unloaded uh, and the cargo taken across to the other side. That is one of the reasons why Athens became such an important city, is that it was a center of, uh, a very important um, center of trade. In verse 12, the book of Acts speaks of Paul being dragged before Gallio. And this is a significant moment, uh, not so much in the story of, of, of Acts, but because there is an important archaeological discovery that also is connected with this. So if, let's read verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gadio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or violent crime, O Jews, I would have no reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gadio paid no attention to any of this. The Bible mentions that the Apostle Paul runs across this individual named Gallio. It calls him a proconsul of Achaia. Achaia is the name of the whole province of which Corinth was the capital. Now, one of the things that's significant about this is that up until a certain time in the 20th century, there had been no record, or at least we knew of no record, of a man named Gallio, and certainly not such a man in the city of Corinth. And, and so skeptics of the Bible would point that out as one of the things that the Bible makes up. Here is an entire individual and a career, uh, a proconsul of an important uh, part of Greece, and he's a figment of Luke's imagination, they would say. But there was an oracle at nearby Delphi. An oracle would be a woman who uh, perhaps reads tea leaves or looks into a crystal ball. This woman at Delphi, a nearby town, had, in, uh, had, had a stone put on above the, her business place. And etched into the stone was given her name, uh, so-and-so, the oracle at Delphi. And then underneath, she put in, I suppose you could call it a, a first-century version of advertising she had put into that stone that Gallio the proconsul in such and such a year of Caesar came to visit me. You can picture Gallio the proconsul, the governor of Achaia, coming to this uh, uh, woman and asking her for advice or, or for his future or something like that. And she promptly made that part of her advertising. The importance of it is uh, twofold. Number one, it suggests that there was indeed a man named Gallio and that he was proconsul of Achaia. But secondly, she actually tells us when he was there. Now, what helps us in that is that the proconsuls in the Roman Empire spent two years in each uh, uh, province where they ruled. They would be moved quite frequently then, every two years from province to province. And so Gallio, uh, uh, Gallio's presence in Achaia narrows Paul's uh, time there down to about 50 to 52. We know almost precisely when the Apostle Paul was in that city. It's also interesting to note how Gallio handles the situation when he hears the, the complaints of the people about Paul. Uh, he says, I, I don't want to be a, a judge of names and titles and the like. It seems as if he's saying, uh, I, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I, I don't know about your law, uh, your Old Testament law. Uh, I don't really care about that. If, the, if this man you're accusing had actually committed a crime of some kind, then I would be interested in that. And so he dismisses everybody from the court. Now, Acts 18, uh, verses 18 through 23, is uh, a section that ends the second missionary journey. Uh, read those verses with me, if you would. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Crenchea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Paul comes back by Ephesus as uh, he's returning to uh, Caesarea. He appears to be in a hurry. He doesn't spend a very long time at all in the city of Ephesus. But Ephesus will become... His signature work, 
and we will follow that, of course, in the third missionary journey and beyond. But um, here is his first encounter with Ephesus, and then verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went into Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I'd like to make an observation about that last statement. We uh, very neatly tie up Paul's activities into three missionary journeys, but as you can tell from that statement, actually Paul had many excursions into various parts of, of the world uh, of his day, and so uh, what we're simply doing is simplifying it for the sake of understanding what we have here. So he returns to Antioch, and so ends the second missionary journey. But what I would like to do is to use this moment as a time to think about the Apostle Paul as a writer. The Apostle Paul lived within a society that was mostly oral in its communication. Many people in the Roman Empire who were slaves or poor people or servants were in fact not literate at all. Uh, one, in, one to three out of ten people could not read at all, uh, depending on the area and the level of education. This does not mean that the written word, however, was insignificant, because in ancient times there were huge libraries, libraries of great importance. There was one in Pergamum that had something like 200,000 books, and in Alexandria that had half a million volumes. So the reading, the written word and reading that word was a very important thing for those who could do it. And what typically happened is if you were illiterate, you would find yourself in a place, perhaps even in an amphitheater, where you listen to people who were literate read the great works of philosophy or literature or something like that. In the early church, there were people who uh, possessed copies of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And Paul, most of his quotations from the Old Testament are in fact from the Septuagint. So, so there were people reading and writing in ancient times, and there was an importance to reading and writing. Paul as a writer. Because many were illiterate, the importance of public readings is something that's emphasized even in Scripture. Uh, Paul's letters were meant to be read out loud. Would you notice, for instance, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Uh, I, I'm aware, of course, that this is John's writing, but notice what he says. Blessed is the one who reads about the aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What is suggested here is that the book of Revelation would be read aloud, perhaps in each of the successive seven churches of Asia. So in each congregation then, somebody would read aloud the words of this particular book. Notice also Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. Colossians chapter 4 verse 16. Intriguingly, Paul says this, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. Now, uh, Laodicea was near Colossae, uh, just a matter of five or six miles away. Apparently there was a church in both of those cities, and so Paul suggests that the book we know as Colossians be read in Colossae, and then be sent over to Laodicea, where it would be read as well. The Laodiceans had a letter from Paul, and so he suggested that, that perhaps that letter come back to the Colossians, and that they hear it read. But notice in both of these occasions, in the Revelation passage and in Colossians, that the books that Paul wrote were intended to be read out loud. 
Most writing in Paul's time was on papyrus. Uh, papyrus would be a reed found in most of the great river systems of the ancient world, along the Nile most famously, but even along the Jordan River and the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. Uh, you would take the reeds of this particular uh, um, the leaves of this particular reed and lay them side by side and, and glue them together, often with flour and water, which would be an ancient form of glue, and they would make uh, a form of paper or papyrus. Papyrus, um, uh, a Christian writers wrote on papyrus and, and parchment. Parchment was uh, from sheep or goat skin that would, of course, be uh, cured and dried. Uh, vellum was another form of uh, paper, if you please, came from calf skin, and it was very expensive. Probably most Christian writers were not done, uh, done on that. By the 4th century AD, uh, parchment became codex. Uh, codex is a book form. In other words, the change went, came from having a scroll, which would be the older way of doing it, to something resembling more uh, like our books, with um, pages glued together at the bottom, and you could turn the pages one at a time. Now, uh, for a few minutes, we will look at a sort of sequence of Paul's epistles. Now that we have something of an acquaintance with at least many of the churches that the Apostle Paul worked with. Uh, most scholars think that the first of Paul's epistles was the book of Galatians. Uh, it would have been written in about A.D. 50, uh, perhaps written from Antioch or perhaps even from Jerusalem at the time of the Jerusalem conference. You remember that we said that when the first missionary journey had ended, the uh, two, Barnabas and Paul, came back to Antioch and there was a controversy as to uh, how the Gentile people should be accepted into the church. Some people uh, suggested, even demanded, that Gentiles be circumcised and take on various other aspects of Jewish life. And so that was a controversy. Well, the book of Galatians deals with precisely that problem at length and in great detail. And so most scholars these days feel as if this is probably written at the end of that first missionary journey and was sent um, along with the letter that had been written by the apostles down in Jerusalem at the end of that conference. Then most people think that in about AD 51, just a year or so later, that first and second Thessalonians were written you might recall that the Apostle Paul spent only three Sabbath days in Thessalonica, and then he was driven out of the city. It appears that he felt as if he had not spent a sufficiently long time in that city with those new converts to give them the grounding that they uh, would actually need. And so he was quite concerned, and by the time he got to Corinth, uh, he wrote back his first epistle to the Thessalonians, and then the second one, not long after, trying to uh, deal with the various kinds of things that would come up, particularly when you had a group of very young, immature Christians. The Delphian inscription mentioning Gallio the proconsul and giving the date of Paul's presence in Achaia that we'd mentioned just a moment ago helps us with this particular date, about AD 51, and written from Corinth. Now, 1st and 2nd Corinthians might have been written about A.D. 55, and it was perhaps written from Ephesus. Now, this would be as part of Paul's third missionary journey. Among Paul's concerns to the Corinthians was the presence of a very immoral situation in Corinth where a member in the church was living with his father's wife. That's out of 1st Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. He urges the church to deal decisively with the situation. And it's probable then that 2 Corinthians writ was written maybe not that long 
long after 1 Corinthians because it appears that in the second book, uh, Paul is responding to a situation where the uh, uh, alarmed Corinthian Christians had handled the problem of the immoral man, had handled it very decisively, and now Paul is urging them to, uh, to welcome the man back into fellowship and reassure him of their love, of their love for him. And those would be the occasions of 1 and 2 Corinthians. The book of Romans, written perhaps in A.D. 57 from Macedonia or Achaia. Paul has elaborate plans and he describes them in the book of Romans to meet the church there. It appears that Paul had not established the church there. We have no idea who did, but this would be a reminder that, of course, though we know of many of the acts of Paul, we do not know of the activities of many, many, many other Christians who were spread all over the empire doing work, preaching and teaching. There was already a church in Rome, and Paul expressed his eagerness to go there and to meet those brethren. But he had a plan. He hoped to go to Rome, and then beyond that, he hoped that the Roman church could send him on to the edge of the Roman Empire, to Spain itself. Ironically, Paul did make it to Rome, but he did not do so, perhaps as he thought he might, because he made it there in chains as a prisoner. That would be the uh, um, period at the end of the book of Acts. Sometimes we have plans to do things, and sometimes God has ideas about it as well. And so here the, here the Lord was guiding Paul to the city he wanted to go, but not quite the way he expected. Now, in the city of Rome, at the end of Acts, perhaps about A.D. 60, Paul finds himself in house arrest. We'll look at that in more detail in a few moments. But uh, in this city and from this city are the one, two, three, four, the four prison epistles as we have come to know them. That would be the book of Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians, and uh, a letter written to a personal individual, and that is the book of Philemon. And so that's what we have in the so-called prison epistles. Although Paul is in prison, perhaps um, at the end of Acts, he's uh, probably released later on uh, to do some more mission work before his ultimate end. Now, uh, the final books that Paul wrote would be First Timothy and Titus, and Second Timothy. First and Second Timothy might have been written in AD 62. We don't know for certain. Uh, Paul writing to young protégés and giving them advice and direction in their ministry. Second Timothy is no doubt the final book that Paul ever wrote. When you read Second Timothy, you can actually feel the pathos. You can feel the urgency in his words. Perhaps written in AD 67 or 68, and in Rome this time, Paul is in in heavy imprisonment. He no longer is in mere house arrest. He's disappeared and somebody had to search for him until they found him. Paul is in fact aware that, that his death was very, very soon. And he urges Timothy to bring him certain things and to come to him quickly uh, in case he doesn't get there in time. We will consider that particular section as well. But what I'm doing is giving you a brief thumbnail sketch of the various um, writings of the Apostle Paul and, and their sequence. Now there are five parts to a typical epistle of Paul and what I've done when I laid this out that I, I based it on the book of Romans although uh, his other letters tend to follow this very same thing. Uh, number one there would be the initial greetings. This is where both writer and audience 
were mentioned. So Paul might say, Paul, an apostle to the Romans or to the Corinthians or something along that line. The initial greetings, he would say grace and peace and, and perhaps have some other kinds of greetings. He would typically begin with a thanksgiving. That would be the second part. The thanksgiving would be to express thanks to God or to uh, for the, the people that he's writing to, for their faith, uh, for their uh, uh, good works, uh, for something along that line. As uh, uh, now, 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 he thanks God for almost every one of the congregations that he writes, except for Galatians. And some have suggested that he was, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, except for the first, uh, for, for, uh, for the Galatians. And, and some have suggested that that was because he was so upset with some of the things that they were doing that he uh, didn't write that Thanksgiving. It certainly is unusual. Number three, and this would be the meat of an epistle, would be theology. Uh, in Romans, it would be Romans chapter 2 through 11. And here would be the chapters where he laid out in some detail uh, the, the biblical theological backgrounds to uh, Christ and service for him and, and what it meant for Christ to die and, and, and sin and all that kind of thing. He would follow his theology with another section that we might call exhortation or practical application. In Romans, that begins with Romans chapter 12 and goes down through to verse 15. Romans 12, 1, you can, you can even see how it is a hinge, a turning point in the book of Romans where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. And he spent the last 10 or 11 chapters trying to explain God's mercies to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And now comes the practical part. You see God's mercies, the theology, how all of that worked. And now Paul is going to say uh, God's mercies and his gifts to us mean that we need to be doing certain things. And there begins the practical side. And then at the end of his books typically would be a final greeting. Uh, this would be in Romans, Romans chapter 16, where Paul uh, um, uh, writes greetings to various individuals that he knew uh, for a church that Paul had never worshipped with in the city of Rome. Paul knew an, a great number of people in the Roman church. And so he uh, takes the time to greet uh, a number of them, some in particular ways. When Paul departs from his format, uh, it's usually uh, for good reason. I mentioned that Galatians has no thanksgiving or blessing section, for instance. There's another thing that we might want to consider as we think about uh, the Apostle Paul and his writings, and that is his use of what uh, scholars refer to as an amanuensis. An amanuensis would be like a, a secretary in our day and age. There is considerable evidence that Paul used such an individual in many or even all of his writings, which you notice, for instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 17. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 17. I, Paul, he says, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And so there you see a signature of Paul. And he says, here is my signature. Here is my greeting. That implies that what has been written up till that point in the epistle was not actually literally Paul's hand writing those words. Notice again 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. There again, it's in the sense of having a signature. Uh, writing at the end of the letter, this is indeed I, Paul. And then Colossians 4 and verse 18. Colossians 4, verse 18. Give thanks. Um, uh, I'm sorry, that was in First Thessalonians. Colossians 4, 
and verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Uh, by now we're uh, anticipating even what Paul's going to say in these verses. Galatians 6 and verse 11. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Some have suggested that this is an indication that Paul had very poor eyesight. And it might be for that reason that he would use a secretary to take down the, uh, the letter as he dictated it to the secretary. Perhaps uh, uh, his letters would have been uh, uh, far too uh, long to be held in one scroll if he used his own handwriting. And finally, in this regard, Philemon uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Philemon... 1 verse 19 I Paul write this with my own hand I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self now Paul is there uh, suggesting that that, that um, he's going to uh, repay Philemon for anything that, that the slave Onesimus had stolen and so he says there I write this with my own hand suggesting that uh, I, I promise him very solemnly that this is what will happen and so uh, so uh, there we have it there if you think about it when you read the epistles of Paul you can tell that he's dictating you can tell the voice of a preacher you can tell the cadence and the movement and you can tell the emotion and, and you can see him building up to a point when you think about Romans chapter 8 uh, when he says says those amazing things about who can separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or or trouble or trial or terror or sword uh, I'm convinced that there is nothing in heaven and and so on you can you can tell him uh, uh, rising to a climax in his message or when you think about first Corinthians 13 the beautiful expression of what love does uh, love is patient, love is kind, and so on. And, and you say to yourself, all right, here's a preacher, and here the preacher is waxing eloquently. I can picture the poor amanuensis uh, writing uh, frantically, trying to keep up with the preacher as his voice rises and, and as he speeds up in his thinking. But these are, in fact, um, some of the characteristics of the Apostle Paul as a writer. I pause as we make some final comments on this particular section. The second missionary journey uh, ends the second part. Uh, of uh, our course. Uh, what we have then is missionary journey number one and missionary journey number two. Both of those you are responsible for in the second test. Uh, look for the same things, the Michelian listings, the uh, ability to identify people, and also uh, def definition of words. If you get those things, you will substantially get the test uh, and, and do it quite well. I wish you good luck, and what we'll do in the next session is to begin the third missionary journey of Paul. Thank you and goodbye.